You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this eighth lecture in our course on spiritual theology, I'd like to take up the topic of the sacraments. And in this eighth lecture, I'll try to cover it in general, as well as consider two of the sacraments, namely baptism and confirmation. And then in the ninth lecture, we'll consider the other sacraments in somewhat greater detail. We undertake this as part of our course in spiritual theology precisely because of the tremendous use that the sacraments are, that these are institutions which Christ himself has established for the sake of our sanctification and the sake of our salvation. And they are deeply involved in our Catholic understanding of how it is that one needs to be transformed in Christ and by Christ. They are, as we've seen, important means of purification and mortification that we've discussed when we were considering conversion from sin and the purification of our senses and our passions, of our intellect and will. And yet those things, in a way, speak more to the question about the removal of obstacles. And with the sacraments, I think we turn especially to the positive portion of the purification and the progress and the transformation of our souls, the positive means that are so deeply appropriate to progress in the spiritual life, namely the sacraments, as well as good works, as well as cultivating a life of prayer. And so as we go a little further, we'll also have lectures dedicated to the virtues and good works, and then to the discussion about prayer and confession and spiritual direction. In each case, whether the sacraments, good works, or prayer, what the human being needs to do is to be responsive and to cooperate with the divine graces that God takes as his initiative and which he makes available to us out of love. So first, let's consider for just a moment the question of the theology of the sacraments in general. And again, I'm mindful that in ICU there is a separate course on the sacraments, so that what I intend here is not a full and complete treatment, but rather a reminder and a review of some of the really important things done especially from the point of view of spiritual theology. We believe that there are seven sacraments, baptism, penance, the Holy Eucharist, confirmation, matrimony, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick. And that each of these is a liturgical means in various ways in which there is liturgical service of God. A liturgical means which is designed both to honor and praise God himself, but also to assist us in the spiritual life. This is particularly true of those which we will receive frequently in our life, things like penance and Holy Eucharist, but is also true of those which are designed only for reception once, things like baptism, confirmation. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, tremendous resource for the consideration of the theology of the spiritual life, there is an entire section dedicated to the sacraments. The whole second part of the Catechism considers first what in general a sacrament is, how it is a kind of sign and a symbol, and yet one that is efficacious in the communication of grace. And then in the second half of that second part, there is a discussion of each of the sacraments in particular, and I refer you in particular to the reading of those sections of the Catechism, extremely useful for this part of the course. At number 1131, the Catechism defines sacraments in this way. Sacraments are efficacious signs of grace, instituted by Christ, and entrusted to the Church, 
by which divine life is dispensed to us. The visible rites by which the sacraments are celebrated signify and make present the graces proper to each sacrament. They bear fruit in those who receive them with the required dispositions. Let's consider the elements of that definition for just a minute. They are efficacious signs of grace. By calling them signs, the Catechism, I think, is very rightly remembering for us that we human beings who are composites of body and soul need the use of physical images and physical objects for us to understand and to experience relation with anything in the world. Signs, in particular, function in this way. In a general theory of signs, there are some signs which are purely conventional. The signs, for instance, that are involved in language. If I took a word like apple, and whether I'm saying it as a sound, apple, or if I were spelling it out, A-P-P-L-E, or if I were writing it for you on the board, any one of those ways of communicating it, namely visually or orally or by the kind of signs that are involved in the spelled out letters, all of those things put together still do not in any way resemble the object where we don't use hieroglyphics and except for certain kinds of sounds like meow where we're trying to imitate the very noise that a cat makes, the signs are not automatopoetic. They don't themselves convey by a resemblance what they're signifying. Hence, they're purely conventional. But there is a special group of signs which are symbolic. That is, they involve the use of physical objects which in some way resemble, which in some way suggest the other reality they're trying to convey. Poets certainly know this, and poets are very careful about the use of particular physical objects as signs so that they will be appropriately symbolic. When Shakespeare, for instance, likes to say, my love is a rose, pretty but prickly, he manages to convey in the use of the term rose something that's extremely valuable for what he intends to say about love, namely the loveliness, as he calls it, pretty, and yet in the case of the particular love he was talking about in that line, prickly, a sense that there is something that's relatively easily angered or easily annoyed, and a sense that somehow his love combines the two of those. That particular image works because the physical object is well designed to convey and to communicate the thought that Shakespeare is anxious to convey. Likewise, the reason why many poets like to use fire as a symbol of love. That fire suggests the warmth and the attractiveness and the great comfort, and yet it can also very readily convey that which is fickle or that which is dangerous if we get too close or approach it in an inordinate way. So too, I think, all the more so, our Lord very carefully chose particular physical objects and physical actions by their natural symbolism and by their natural sign to convey what the spiritual reality that the sacrament is conveying to us. So here I'm not in the least trying to suggest that the sacraments are simply symbolic. That phrase, I think, is sometimes misused. My own personal suspicion is, is that it comes from the experience that sometimes we have in badly ordered literature class when poetry teachers want us to hold that everything is symbolic of something else, and you're really left scratching your head by the end, wondering whether the poet intended any of the things that the literature teacher found in some of the images. And yet, what the real truth of the matter is, and the basis for a sound literature class, is, is that the poet did, in fact, use particular physical objects precisely to be suggestive at the spiritual or at the intellectual or at the emotional level. Well, all the more so Christ, so very carefully in establishing the sacraments and entrusting those sacraments to the church, 
uses particular signs, particular physical objects, and particular physical actions precisely to convey all the better what it is that the spiritual grace, what it is that the spiritual effect that is being communicated by these sacraments actually is. Hence the church in the catechism defines these sacraments as efficacious signs of grace, places and institutions and actions in which the grace of Christ is really given to us in an effective way, and yet is given to us by means of these particular physical signs. They've been entrusted to the church, and the church has hence carried them out and established particular rituals and established particular liturgical arrangements in which these signs are to be communicated so that the graces may be dispensed to us. And the Catechism also emphasizes in the passage we just read that these happen for us simply because of the power that Christ gave to the church in these sacraments. And yet, we are called upon to receive them worthily. And we'll discuss in just a minute some of the significance of that. But to summarize that first point, these are physical signs, and yet they're not arbitrarily imposed in their meaning. They're rather very carefully crafted, precisely in the way that images need to be carefully crafted. I think especially of St. John Damascene and his defense of the icons against the iconoclasts. And he argued in the course of that defense of icons and the use of church art about the importance of art, especially for us, that we human beings as composite of body and soul need these devices to learn and to remember and to understand, and hence God has so carefully devised them. Number 1127 in the Catechism, we hear more about the need to receive these sacraments worthily. It says, celebrated worthily in faith, the sacraments confer the grace that they signify. They are efficacious because in them Christ himself is at work. It is he who baptizes, he who acts in his sacraments, in order to communicate the grace that each sacrament signifies. The Father always hears the prayer of his Son's church, which in the epiclesis of each sacrament expresses her faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. As fire transforms into itself everything it touches, so the Holy Spirit transforms into the divine life whatever is subjected to his power. Now in that passage from the Catechism, there you see the authors of the Catechism very interestingly using an image itself, namely the image of fire transforming whatever it touches, precisely because that image of fire is so very powerful here to suggest what the action of the Holy Spirit is, namely that the Holy Spirit in the course of these sacraments is able to transform and to accomplish the great works and the profound progress in the spiritual life, the purification and the greater unity with God that we so much desire. There was one technical term there in that passage that needs to be defined, the epiclesis. The epiclesis refers to the calling down of the Holy Spirit. One sees this, for instance, in the course of the Eucharist when celebrated at Mass, and there's a place when the priest puts his hand over the elements and asks the Holy Spirit to come and to sanctify and to consecrate these elements, making the bread and wine into the body and blood of the Lord. So too, in other sacraments, there is a calling down of the Holy Spirit. The suggestion of this passage in the Catechism is that the sacraments are efficacious. There is an effectiveness to them because of what Christ has done and the way in which he has entrusted these powers to the church through the Holy Spirit. And yet, at the very beginning of the passage that I just quoted, the church is also focusing on the fact that there needs to be a worthiness in the way we celebrate them. There needs to be adequate preparation and there needs to be an adequate care and a proper disposition on the part of the person who is receiving them. 
Very important, I think, in the theology of the spiritual life to understand this correctly. One of the aspects that needs to be stressed here in Catholic theology is that the sacraments act ex opere operato. One has a discussion of this at number 1128 in the Catechism. Literally, this Latin phrase, ex opere operato, means by the very fact of the actions being performed. That is, there's something that really happens, something efficacious about the sacraments. The saving work that Christ himself accomplished is really in fact handed on, is really in fact transmitted by the sacrament when the sacrament is performed. This is why, for instance, it is possible in baptism for children to be baptized, even tiny infants. Baptism is something that is a free grace of God that is given and must be freely received. And yet in the baptism of children, especially the baptism of infants, the children are not yet in a position freely to express their acceptance. And for this reason, we need the action of parents and the action of godparents to make the profession of faith and to accept the sacrament freely on behalf of these, their charges, their children. This is extremely important. And so part of what we're understanding is that in the baptism, even of the smallest infant, the grace, sanctifying grace of Christ comes to the child, even though the child is too young yet to understand, too young yet to express the freedom of commitment, that the grace really comes by virtue of the sacrament having been administered. It doesn't come because the minister was personally qualified in the sense of being especially holy, but only because the minister is ready to do what the church intends, and in the case of certain of the sacraments, because the minister has been ordained and has been given the power of Christ to administer those particular sacraments. What happens, happens by the power of God. What the church does require is that those who administer the sacraments should act with the intention of the church. There is, of course, a full ritual of baptism which ought to be done in church by a priest, but in a case of emergency, anyone can administer the sacrament of baptism so long as the person is trying to do what the church intends. And then the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit does act in and through the sacrament, to quote the catechism again, independent of any personal holiness of the minister. This is to make an important distinction and one that is sometimes misunderstood in these discussions, namely a distinction between the merits of the sacrament and the fruits of the sacrament. The merits of the sacrament are available to anyone who receives them because the sacrament works by virtue of the action having been performed, ex opere operato. But as the catechism explains at number 1128, quote, the fruits of the sacrament depend on the disposition of the one who receives them. That is, we ourselves must be indeed ready to receive them, to accept them, and then to act upon them. And that personal disposition is extremely important and sometimes needs to be stressed every bit as much as the merits that are received on the sacrament done when the action is performed. This is especially crucial for our discussion here in the theology of the spiritual life because that personal disposition of the person receiving the sacrament is so important for growth in the spiritual life. Even though the merits and the effects of the sacrament occur ex opere operato, it is important to remember that this is not intended as some kind of magic, that the signs and the gestures of the sacrament are intended to be the means by which grace is conferred, and yet we really want to stress the importance of a desire for the fruits 
and a sense of the qualifications and the worthiness of the celebration, precisely so that we cooperate in the best way we can with the graces that Christ is making available to us. Perhaps we'll see this more as we start to discuss some of the sacraments in detail. And so let me turn now in this lecture to the first two, namely to the sacraments of baptism and of confirmation. These two are often grouped together precisely because they are sacraments that initiate us into the life of faith. The Catechism number 1213 describes baptism as the gateway to life in the Spirit. It is the sacrament by which we begin to receive the life of grace and thus begin in the path that leads us toward growth in holiness. Through it, of course, there are a number of things that occur. First, we are freed from sin, freed from any original sin and freed from any actual sin. Freed from original sin in the sense that there is any blame that is still assigned and any disability and it begins the healing of that original sin. From any actual sin or crime, one does receive remission from that by the grace of baptism. Secondly, we become members of the church and are now given certain responsibilities to conduct ourselves as members of that church, as well as tremendous opportunities for the receptions of the other sacraments and the participation in the life of the community that can be such a support. And thirdly, very importantly, through the sacrament of baptism, we experience the spiritual regeneration, the being born again from above, reborn as children of God. We who were, strictly speaking, creatures of God and made in His image, and yet we're not His adopted heirs. We are by baptism made those heirs in the Spirit by becoming the brothers and sisters of Jesus and the adopted children of God. For an adult who receives the sacrament of baptism, it means not just incorporation into the church and the washing away of sin, this is described especially in paragraphs 977 to 980, when we're dealing with that portion of the creed that deals with one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, but it is also for the adult an insistence on commitment to a certain way of life and a conversion from the past. Where a child, an infant, has no habits yet that need to be undone, an adult always has certain habits, certain ways in which one comes at life. And so the conversion of an adult and the baptism of an adult means a conversion in terms of one's way of life and a new commitment to life in the church. One thinks here especially about the RCIA programs, the Rite of the Christian Initiation of Adults, in which the adults who are being received into the church in baptism or coming into the church from another Christian denomination and will at Easter time during the Easter vigil make their profession of faith, why it's so very important not only to have good instruction leading up to it and a full experience of the sacrament, but also why it's so important after being received into the church in whatever manner, that there be a really vigorous life of prayer and that ongoing use of the sacraments for the sanctification of the soul. Secondly, that there be a certain pattern of good works, that the person learn good habits and express this commitment in a full way. Why there needs to be real ongoing education in the faith, why one needs to continue to learn more about our faith and about the morality that accompanies this faith. And fourthly, why it's so important for there to be good friends to continue the journey. It's so very hard to do it alone. Even for an infant, however, this sacrament means the conveying of sanctifying grace for infant or for adult that begins to repair the deficiencies of original sin and of any actual sins that have been committed. 
This is the work of the Holy Spirit within us, who seals us with an indelible seal, that we will now belong to Christ unto the day of redemption. There's a very interesting passage in this in the second letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. The effects of original sin, which I've been trying to stress in this course, sometimes are just not emphasized enough. They are operative in each one of us from the moment of our conception. I like to think of original sin as something like on the order of a conception defect, like a birth defect. I myself bear a bit of a cleft palate and a hair lip, and it was one of those birth defects that needed both surgery when I was three days and 18 months. Mom and Dad wondered whether I'd ever talk, and as you can see, it's just yakety yakety yak. But part of the ability to speak in this way and to speak with some clarity, any of the abilities there came from good surgery, a lot of dentistry, and then the ongoing remedies that were personal in nature. Mom and Dad, for instance, being careful to get me to clarify my speech when I would tend to slur my words. Well, in a somewhat similar way, where a defect needed surgery and then ongoing remedies to repair, in many ways, original sin is somewhat like that on the spiritual order. There's a deficiency in the order of charity that we were discussing earlier on in this course. And the repair work that is needed begins with the sacrament of baptism, when the life of grace is restored to the soul, when we are regenerated, and then must continue in an ongoing way with sacraments like penance, reconciliation, and the feeding that takes place in Holy Communion, as well as the gifts of the Spirit that come with confirmation. And in a way, these are the spiritual remedies that take our nature, which was wounded, and then has been repaired. But like a birth defect, nonetheless, the repair leaves a certain sign that there was radical surgery needed, and yet now the nature begins to grow in a way that is appropriate to that nature. And this, I think, is what a Thomas Aquinas means when he insists that grace comes not to destroy nature, but to remedy it, to heal it, to perfect it. In the liturgy of baptism, the rites themselves evoke so many of these healing properties. The rites call for first the sign of the cross, which the minister and then various parents and godparents and other family members will draw over the forehead of the child or the person to be baptized. The reading of scripture, exorcism and the anointing with oil of catechumens, a profession of faith either made by the person being baptized or by the sponsors, the parents or godparents in the case of an infant, the pouring of blessed water or the triple immersion into it, anointing with sacred chrism and the bestowal of a white garment and a candle lit from the paschal candle. I'd like to read just a short passage from St. Gregory of Nazianzen that is quoted in the catechism in part of its attempt to make greater use of some of the resources of the Eastern Fathers of the Church, because Gregory of Nazianzen reviews in this short passage the spiritual significance of each aspect of those material signs that have long been used in the sacrament of baptism. Baptism, he says, is God's most beautiful and magnificent gift. We call it gift, grace, anointing, enlightenment, garment of immortality, bath of rebirth, seal, and most precious gift. It is called gift because it is conferred on those who bring nothing of their own. Grace, since it is given even to the guilty. Baptism, because sin is buried in the water. Anointing, for it is priestly and royal, as are those who are anointed. Enlightenment, because it radiates light. Clothing, since it veils our shame. Bath, because it washes, and seal as it is our guard 
and the sign of God's lordship. In each of those, he brings out beautifully what is involved in the spiritual significance of each of these signs. For the study of baptism in the spiritual life, one of the most helpful passages of Scripture to consult is, of course, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. One finds that near the beginning of each of the four Gospels. In response to John's deferential, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus explains his gesture with words that the church has understood to mean that he voluntarily took upon himself all human sin in order to do the work of redemption. He says, and here I'll quote from the Gospel of Matthew, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The Father's acceptance of this offering in his voice when he says, This is my beloved Son, and sends the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, is then manifest that the Lord accepts this offering from Jesus. That we begin our spiritual life with baptism by water and the Holy Spirit comes from the directions that Christ gave his disciples and gave the church, especially in the moments just before his ascension. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. Thereby he suggests the importance of baptism and the communication of these saving graces, and then the ongoing instruction that the apostles are supposed to give in helping a person to understand what else is required for the spiritual life. Let me reflect just briefly with you on the sacrament of confirmation. Whether this is administered at the same time as baptism, as is very customary in the East, or somewhat later in life, as is typical in the West, confirmation is a strengthening by the Holy Spirit and the completion of those graces which are first given in baptism. Like the use of oil in baptism, the use of oil in the sacrament of confirmation is an anointing, and here especially an anointing with the oil of chrism, a sign of the great abundance and joy that any kind of administration of oil is given, as well as a sense of its medicinal properties, a sign of cleaning as well as of healing, like various kinds of medicines and salves. And then finally, it, it serves as a kind of a sign of consecration, that the administration of oil is an anointing, and just as we think, for instance, of the very special anointing that a priest receives upon his ordination, or go back to the anointing with the Holy Spirit that our Lord himself receives at the time of his baptism in the River Jordan by John. Well, this sacrament, namely confirmation, is usually seen by the church as a kind of a fulfillment of the promise that Christ made that he would send the Holy Spirit. One hears this in the Gospel of John at chapter 14 and 15, that he would send the Holy Spirit with his various gifts, the gifts that I was describing back in Lecture 5 of this series, the gifts that will strengthen us for the defense of our faith, as well as for the undertaking of spiritual and corporal works of mercy. These are things which we need the grace of the Holy Spirit to be strong enough and to have the incentive to do. As the Catechism explains at number 1305, the sacrament of confirmation is the indelible spiritual mark that is conferred by this sacrament to perfect the common priesthood of the faithful that is received in baptism. This common priesthood of the faithful is different from the ministerial priesthood that we'll be discussing in the next lecture, but one that is very important for the study of spiritual theology in order to appreciate what Vatican II called the apostolate of the laity. Let me end this lecture by just a short quotation from Vatican II. 
But the laity, too, share in the priestly, prophetic, and royal office of Christ, and therefore have their own role to play in the mission of the whole people of God in the church and in the world. They exercise a genuine apostolate by their activity on behalf of bringing the gospel and holiness to men, and on behalf of penetrating and perfecting the temporal sphere of things through the spirit of the gospel. In this way, their temporal activity can openly bear witness to Christ and promote the salvation of men. Since it is proper to the layman's state in life for him to spend his days in the midst of the world and of secular transactions, he is called to burn with the Spirit of Christ and to exercise his apostolate in the world as a kind of leaven. In the next lecture, we'll consider the other sacraments and their role in our spiritual life. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.